I'll tell you, he's done a lot for us. Even in the difficult times. We were learning about Martin Luther during Sunday school a bit. And Martin Luther went through some pretty terrible times. But God used those times to bring him to Christ. And it's just amazing how God does that. Even in the difficult times, he is working to benefit us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you for the fact that we can come here and learn from your word. And we pray that you'll open our hearts up, that we might be attentive, that we might listen, and that we might grow from, from what you have to teach us, Lord. Help us all to be in a receptive mood, myself included, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you truly will work in our congregation, work in those who are not able to be here, and work in us as we listen, Lord, that you might truly bless us and help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was actually rather difficult to write. It's hard to write for a couple of reasons. One, it's a very difficult passage, difficult to understand, and difficult in that what the preacher is saying to us here is not easy to hear. Um, last week when, when we were looking, Jeremy talked about the Father's grace. And in Sunday school, we looked at God's holiness as it relates to his justice. What we saw was that God's holiness demands that we be pure and holy. And his justice says that no matter how small the sin is, it is treason. And it requires a death penalty. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul that sins shall die. This is the command God gave to Adam. In the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. This command is the one Adam broke. And that day he was under the penalty of death. It was only God's mercy and grace that Adam was not struck dead immediately. It is only mercy that gave us the chance to repent because everyone who sins is under God's penalty. Every breath we take is because of his mercy. As we have been studying Hebrews, we have seen Jesus died on the cross to provide the sacrifice that was necessary for God to show his mercy. As we saw when Jesus ascended into heaven to present this acceptable sacrifice to the Father, he was appointed as our great high priest. We also learned that because Jesus is our great high priest, he has given us complete access to the Father 
as his adopted children. These are the basic foundational truths the, pray, the preacher has laid out so far in the book of Hebrews. And he spent a lot of time dealing with these foundational truths. In chapters 7 through 10, the preacher will lay out many important implications of what it means for us to have Jesus as our great high priest. But first, he switches back to exhortation to get our attention. At first blush, what the preacher is about to say may seem very harsh, and every one of us probably will be thinking, it couldn't possibly apply to me. I just want to say, I wouldn't be so sure about that. Whatever we study, whenever we study the scriptures, we should carefully and prayerfully examine our hearts and ask, how does this apply to my life? We never learn from the scriptures unless we learn to apply it to ourselves. It's not, oh, that person needs so much to hear this. If God is having me study this passage, it's because he wants me to hear it. In this exhortation, the preacher is trying to accomplish two things here. First, he sees his congregation starting to drowse off as he's preaching. And he starts speaking loudly to wake them up. He wants to get their attention. What he is about to say is very, very important in chapters 7 through 10. And he's saying these things as a means to wake the readers up. Second, he confronts them with the danger of their unwillingness to press on into a deeper understanding of spiritual matters. There are three very important things the preacher wants to get across in this passage before moving on in chapter 7. First, wake up. Second, we must press on into a deeper understanding of spiritual matters. And third, we are in danger if we don't. We are looking at Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verses 11 through 6, 20. And I want to read chapter 5, verses 11 to 14 to start off with. I'm going to read the different passages as we look at them. So Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, 
who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This first section, wake up. The first thing the preacher says to wake the readers up is to say, we have much to say, but it's hard to get the message across because you're not listening. When he says, you have become dull of hearing, it is not just we've spaced out and our attention just wandered for a second. No, the preacher is telling the readers they have made a habit of not listening. And it's not just whether or not we come to church and hear a message or whether or not we learn from what we hear. It's a matter of, do we take time to actually study the scriptures? I'll be the first one to say I don't do it as often as I should. We need to spend time in the scriptures. That is how we listen to God. He speaks to us through his word. They should be teaching others, but instead they need to hear the elementary things. That's what he just got done teaching them in the first five chapters about Jesus being our great high priest priest as he built up to all this. He's saying you should be out in the deep end of the pool learning about deep spiritual things. Instead, you're in the wading pool eating baby food while you should be teaching others and eating steak and potatoes. What he is getting at here is that teaching the basics is not just for the leaders. If you know Christ, you should be sharing your faith with others. As Jesus said in the Great Commission, we should be leading others to Christ and making disciples. If we are serious about church growth, we need to get serious about our spiritual growth and reaching out to others. The solution to this problem is we need to practice and train our senses. And that comes from studying the scriptures. This is actually what he says in verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You want to know the difference between good and evil? You want to know if your decisions are right or wrong? You need to learn and listen. Any athlete will tell you they did not become skilled in their sport without spending time and effort in a planned program Notice I said planned program of exercise and practice. The piano teacher will tell the piano student the same thing. The three principles of learning are practice, practice, and more practice. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul considered discipline to be so important that he, that he was saying, look, I don't want to be out there teaching others about the gospel and teaching others and then just live such an undisciplined life that I'm disqualified. He says, I want to live a disciplined life. And that disciplined life is not Physical discipline, it is spiritual discipline. It is the discipline of study. It's the discipline of prayer. It's the discipline of coming before a holy God. And yes, we can come before a holy God because he has made the way. And confessing those sins that we have committed, asking God to give us the strength to grow and not do those things again. Because that's what it's all about, is that we grow and become more like Christ each and every day. It is a walk. It's not not just a short little sprint. It is a long marathon from the day we become a Christian to the day the Lord calls us home. And that's what the preacher is getting at here in this whole passage is perseverance, patience, working to grow. Pay attention, exercise. Stretch those spiritual muscles. He then continues after waking us up and says, we must press on into a deeper understanding of spiritual matters. When the preacher starts chapter 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, he is not saying that these teachings are unimportant. He just spent a considerable amount of time discussing them. And he is now looking back and saying, these truths are foundational. And the foundation is important if the building is to stand strong. Chapter 6, 1 to 3 tells us we need to press on into a deeper understanding of Christ. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands 
and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. We can't just keep laying the same foundation over and over and over again. Granted, the cross and what Christ did on it is central to our faith. But there is so much more. When we looked at Ephesians 6, we saw that the armor of God is very important to our daily walk. In Galatians, we see that the fruit of the Spirit should be evident in our lives. In Philippians, we learn that he gives us peace that cannot be understood, only experienced. James teaches us the danger of the unbridled tongue and that faith does not, that does not produce the fruit of works is dead. These are but a few of the bricks in the building that should be sitting on our foundation of faith. There are so many more And we should be about the business of learning these truths and putting them to practice in our lives. Jeremy talked about the prodigal and how the father was not ashamed to reach out and show compassion. When we think about this, we should also think about how we should not be like his elder son who made no effort to welcome his brother home. Instead, we need to reach out to others to show Christ's love and compassion to those who don't know him. Reaching out involves risk. Reaching out takes us out of our comfort zone. Reaching out is where Christ wants us to be. Do you want to know God's will for you right now? It is very simple. Help those who do not know Christ's love to understand his love. We should be sharing the foundation of what we have learned with those who don't know Jesus while we press on to a deeper understanding of him. And again, it's not just the responsibility of the leadership. Every individual needs to be involved. Every individual needs to be reaching out to others. Every individual needs to be pressing into a deeper understanding of Christ. That is what it's all about. It's not learning a bunch of facts. It's, it's coming to know Him intimately and personally. And then the preacher says, we are in danger if we do not press into a deeper understanding of Him. These next three verses in the book of Hebrews are probably the most difficult to understand in the entire New Testament. They have been under debate by great theologians throughout the history of the church. As a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul, when he talks about how the 
canon of Scriptures were put together. Hebrews was hotly debated as to whether or not it should be in the Bible because of these three verses. But back then, many, many, many people thought Paul was the author. No, I don't believe that to be the case. But because they thought Paul was the author, they said, this has to be part of the Scriptures. God, in his superintendence, allowed this book to be here. And these three verses, the reason they are so hotly debated is, as you read them, on the surface, it seems like what they're saying is a person can be saved and then lose their salvation. As a matter of fact, those who believe that eternal security is not the truth of the Word of God lean on these three verses the most. So I want us to be careful when we read these verses. They sound this way, but there's more to it than what, what is going on, and I'll explain this as we continue. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, this is verses 4 to 6 in chapter 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now again, it almost sounds like what he's saying here is, here they are. They've heard the word. They've heard the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has been active in their lives, and yet they fall away. The warning is clear. If we don't press into a deeper understanding, we are in danger of apostasy. The word here, falling away, is actually the word apostasy. C.H. Spurgeon said this about these three verses. If all the processes of grace fail, in the case of any professors, what is to be done with them? If the grace of God does not enable them to overcome the world, if the blood of Christ does not purge them from sin, what more can be done? Upon this supposition, God's utmost has been tried and has failed. Mark that Paul does not say that all this could ever happen, but that if it could, the person concerned would be like a piece of ground in which brought forth nothing but thorns and briars. Now, the way it is written it is, it, the, the way C.H. Spurgeon looks at it here, I think is very, a very good understanding. And we also have to see, he points us to verses 7 and 8, and I think it's important for us to understand verses 7 and 8 are the preacher's way of restating what he just said in verses 4, 5, and 6. And he says it in a way to help us 
understand, I think, a little bit better what's going on here. Hebrews 6, 7 and 8 says this, For the ground drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Any farmer can relate to this picture. Here, a crop has been planted, and when the rain comes, a good crop is expected. If the ground produces this crop, the farmer is blessed, and he has food on the table. On the other hand, if thorns and thistles come up, the farmer is devastated, and there is no food. This is a curse, and the only thing to do is burn out the weeds and plant again. This is very similar to the parable of the sower and the seed. Only we are the ground, and the Holy Spirit's enlightening, as he talks about in verses 4 and 5, is the rain. And the ground can do one of two things. It can produce that good fruit, or it can produce thorns and thistles. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7, 15 to 23. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every one good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is so much like what he's saying in verses 7 and 8. So then, you will know them by their fruits. So what he's saying here to wake us up is, does your life truly reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit? We have to be very careful and understand, now it's not an effort of mine. It's not that I do it, but that the Holy Spirit does it through me. I like the way James McDonald illustrated it by saying if we were to consider a glove on a table, this glove is there and there's nothing it can do until somebody puts a hand inside that glove and makes it move. And that's what we are to be like. We are to be like that glove. And when the Holy Spirit 
fills our lives, he then makes the glove move. And that's how true fruit is produced. It's not my effort to do these good things. It's his working through me. Jesus continues in verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Notice, miracles are being produced here. Hmm, that's interesting. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now notice it doesn't say, I knew you and then you turned away from me. He says, I never knew you. The scary thing about this is there are going to be a lot of people that are going to enter eternity thinking they're going to go to heaven because they are living the good life. They're doing good deeds. They're giving money to the poor. They're attending church. I read the scriptures. I believe what they say. I go to church. I even taught Sunday school. James 2, 19 and 20 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? There must be genuine fruit. And when I say genuine fruit, I mean the Holy Spirit is the one that produces it. The fruit of the Spirit, as, as Paul talks about in Galatians 5. It's His fruit in our lives. It's not just some momentary, I'm holding myself together, and I'm not stealing, and I'm not doing this, and I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing the other thing. Notice there's a trend here. There's all these rules that we're not supposed to do. That's not what our faith is about. What our faith is about is imitating Christ. And the only way we can imitate Christ is to allow the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to do it. The warning the preacher is giving is that it is not just belief but there must be a genuine change in our lives that results in good fruit. In verses 9 through 12, he softens his warning by telling them he is convinced of better things. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you 
and things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So what he's saying to them is, look, there is a danger. And there may even be some who don't know Christ, and you need to, you need to understand whether or not you are one of those who don't know Christ and turn to Christ. But if you are a Christian, you need to press in. Again, the first thing we see is that the preacher reminds them that he has seen fruit in their lives. And he's encouraging them to persevere in showing this fruit. One key ingredient to their realizing the full assurance of hope is they remain diligent and continue to show the good work they have already been showing. Perseverance. That's one of the key aspects of our Christian walk is that we continue. It's not, again, like I said, a sprint. It is a marathon. Another ingredient is they must not be sluggish, but imitate the faith and patience of those who inherit the promise. And then in verses 13 to 20, he shows Abraham as an example for us to imitate. Verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice this covenant that the preacher is talking about is totally one-sided. Was there anything Abraham had to do? Was there anything in him that, that, that God required to fulfill this oath? Most contracts, a person says, I will do this, and another person says, I will do this, and they agree on these two things, and they say, okay, this is fine, and we have this contract. Hey, a marriage is like that. Marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife. And each one pledges. But this isn't the case. The case is that God himself makes this oath to Abraham and says, I am going to do this no matter what. And Abraham waited. As a matter of fact, if you see, Abraham failed, if you look at his life. Didn't he try to get God's oath fulfilled by having a child in a way that God did not prescribe? God said, well, that's not the one. The one will be through Sarah, your wife. So we see that God waits and Abraham had to wait. And it's interesting. Abraham only had one descendant, and yet what did God promise? I'll make your descendants as numerous as the sand. And then Abraham's son, Isaac, had two sons. Well, there's growth. But it was Jacob that had 12 sons, and so on and so forth. And it was actually long after Abraham was dead that we see this happening. As a matter of fact, the culmination of God's promise to Abraham was Jesus when he died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he made it so that we can become descendants of Abraham by faith. So we are part of that promise. And he is still fulfilling that promise that Abraham waited so long. And he wants us to have the same kind of patience that we may not see things immediately, but we know that God has promised us. As a matter of fact, what is the promise God has made to us? In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not ha perish but have everlasting life. This is the hope. This is the anchor for our soul. This is why we need to be diligent to walk in faith and be imitators of those who have gone before us 
to walk in faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your promise to us of eternal life. And we pray that as this does anchor us, Lord, that we will hold fast to that anchor and press in to a deeper understanding of your grace in our lives. That we will diligently study your word. That we will diligently pray for those in our community. That we will diligently seek you out and seek out those in need. That we may be ministers as well as be ministered to. In Jesus' name, amen.